Mr. Funnyman, allow me to explain about the theatre business. <coughs> the natural condition is one of insurmountable obstacles on the road to imminent disaster. So what do we do? Nothing. Strangely enough, it all turns out well. How? I don't know. It's a mystery. Hello and welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. So, in many circles, the fact that Saving Private Ryan lost the Oscar for Best Picture to Shakespeare in Love is one of the biggest sins by the Academy of all time. And honestly, in that debate, I'm always the guy who brings up Life is Beautiful, also nominated that year, and one, at the time at least, I preferred to either. But they're all great movies, so I don't see the loss by Saving Private Ryan as this great injustice. I do still need to rewatch it, as I just rewatched Shakespeare in Love, which I have to say won me over. I'd seen it a couple times before and always enjoyed it, but as I've gone through this project, I've just actually gotten way more enjoyment out of movies that I had seen before, this time with an eye for historical relevance. I have to say, the script for Shakespeare in Love is just really, really good. Some things are a little too dated and polished with a 1990s veneer, and early on I was worried it wasn't going to hold up at all. Shakespeare in Love may be relatively unique on our list so far as it portrays several historical characters, even if many are quite minor, while giving us a completely fabricated story. So I'll probably rush through the plot quicker than usual because, well, it didn't happen. But I do want to make sure we meet everyone and talk about who was real and who was fictional. And before you say, well, heck, that's not fair that it beat Saving Private Ryan with a made-up story, Saving Private Ryan is fictional too. Yes, it includes some historical events, but the characters are all made up. There was no Private Ryan. Well, it's a common enough name. There probably was, but you know what I mean. Okay, so the opening text tells us we are in London in 1593, and I'll go ahead and quote the rest. In the glory days of the Elizabethan theater, two playhouses were fighting it out for writers and audiences. North of the city was the Curtain Theater, home to England's most famous actor, Richard Burbage. Across the river was the competition, built by Philip Henslow, a businessman with a cash flow problem. The Rose. Now already, they're not being 100% genuine with us. The Rose was the fourth theater to be built in about an 11-year time frame here in London. Burbage was one of the biggest actors of his day, though he was probably second to Ned Allen, who we'll meet later in the film, portrayed by Ben Affleck. But Burbage wasn't affiliated with the Curtain Theater, rather another theater called the theater, opened by his father. And I think the film just chose to combine those two into one for convenience's sake. And I couldn't really find anything about Henslow's cash problems. That just appears to be another thing they threw in to keep the plot going. Now, as they do mention here soon in the movie, the theater community was hit hard by closures forced due to the plague. In fact, during a three-year span, which included 1593, nearly 11,000 London residents died to the plague. Here in the film, Henslow desperately needs Will Shakespeare to finish up his newest play so they can put it on and make some money. Henslow, played by Jeffrey Rush, is largely the comic relief in the film, though it's a pretty light movie with humor throughout. The man he owes money to is fictional. Now, interestingly, Henslow's diaries survive to this day and give historians a lot of insight into the world of theater at the time. His diaries don't, however, mention... William Shakespeare, as most of Shakespeare's work was probably shown at the theater and later the Globe once it was built in 1599. Anyway, Will has writer's block at the moment and goes to see an apothecary who basically serves as his shrink. 
Will mentions his wife, Anne Hathaway, who he married when he was 18 and she was nearly 27. And no, Anne Hathaway isn't in this movie. Nothing to do with the Oscar-winning actress Anne Hathaway. She just happens to share a name with Shakespeare's real-life wife. Will says he hasn't seen his wife in four years and seems to have just abandoned her to move to London to write. The movie doesn't mention the three kids the couple had together. Shakespeare was born in 1564 in Stratford-upon-Avon, and I've always been confused by the name of that town because it just sounds like too many words. But taking back each part to its roots kind of becomes street forward on the river, so maybe thinking of it as something like Riverwalk makes the name seem less daunting. We can just chalk it up to a sort of Britishism. Will meets up with a woman named Rosaline. She's fictitious and so named here after the girl Romeo is interested in before he sees Juliet. He hopes she'll work as his muse to get him over his writer's block. It initially works and he tears through the first act of Romeo and Ethel the Pirate's Daughter. Yeah, humorous initial name they came up with for the movie here. It changes throughout before finally becoming Romeo and Juliet near the end. Burbage, the actor and owner of the curtain, wants to steal Will away from Henslow and the Rose and fronts him some money so he can have first crack at his next play. After catching Rosaline in bed with another man at Burbage's house, Will reneges on the deal but keeps the money and goes back to Henslow. Our female lead in the movie is Viola, played by Gwyneth Paltrow in an Oscar-winning performance. Viola is the daughter of a rich family and she's obsessed with the theater and particularly enamored with the work of Shakespeare. She's arranged to be married to Lord Wessex, much to her dismay. The match will be a huge status increase to Viola's family and help Wessex regain a fortune to match his status. He's played by Colin Firth, but both Viola and Lord Wessex are fictional. We also meet fellow writer Christopher Marlowe, also known as Kit Marlowe, when Will runs into him at a bar. Marlowe was a contemporary of Shakespeare and far more successful and well-regarded at this point in their careers. Will could only dream of being Marlowe, and that shows here. I'd never really heard of any of his plays, but he did do an early version of the Faust story about a doctor who makes a pact with the devil. So the main plot kicks into action when Viola shows up to audition at the Rose dressed as a man and going by the name Thomas Kent. Women aren't allowed to act, but she's dying to give it a try. She's so good, Will excitedly wants to talk. In her panic at being discovered to be a woman, Viola flees home and Will follows. He asks at the door for Thomas Kent and is told by Viola's nursemaid, who knows where she's been, that Kent isn't available. Will offers him, slash her, the part of Romeo via the nurse. Will sticks around for a party at the house where he falls in love at first sight upon seeing Viola as herself at a dance. He has no idea she was the Thomas Kent from earlier. They dance and there's an instant connection. Wessex throws Will out and even refers to Viola as his property. When he asks his name, Will says his name is Marlowe, so Wessex can't send anyone after him. So the bulk of the movie is Will writing Romeo and Juliet as they're rehearsing it. Viola is now his muse and their budding relationship finds its way into the play. When he learns Thomas Kent is Viola, it simply becomes a secret between the two of them and their passionate affair intensifies. At a gathering with Elizabeth I, the Queen notes to Wessex that she'd wager his fiancée has been deflowered. She says it takes a woman to know. Wessex assumes it's that Marlowe fellow he threw out of the party at Viola's house. Later that night or the next, Will and company hear that Marlowe has been murdered, and Will is distraught that it's his fault. Essex then comes to the Rose to challenge Will, having finally figured out the truth. Will beats him in a duel and tells everyone present that Wessex killed Marlowe. 
but it was all just a coincidence. Marlowe died of a brawl of his own making, Will is told. In fact, since so much of the story is fictionalized here, the death of Christopher Marlowe is actually what best narrows down our timeline here. Marlowe was indeed stabbed to death in 1593, May 30th to be exact. So given that this whole movie takes place over the course of a two to three week period, we know right when it's meant to be. This is also roughly the time when Shakespeare is believed to have written Romeo and Juliet, but we don't know that near as precisely. As you may have noticed, the movie very intentionally so plays out like a Shakespearean comedy with disguises and misunderstandings and a love story. It's not a tragedy as the only death count is Marlowe who dies off stage and was really only a cameo. Of course, Viola ends up being exposed as actually being a woman and the royal official in charge of the theater shuts down the rose. Viola gets married to Wessex, but immediately after the ceremony, learns that Romeo and Juliet will still debut at Burbage's theater, The Curtain. She rushes off away from her husband to watch it. Since she had been Romeo, Will has to play that role himself. And in truth, Shakespeare did do plenty of acting in his time at the theater. Throwing one more wrench into things is that the young man who had been rehearsing for Juliet this whole time suddenly has his voice drop an octave or two, which would be an embarrassment for the whole production. Henslow happens to run into Viola in the crowd, who, of course, knows the whole play by heart. So she steps in to play Juliet on the spot, and Will doesn't know about it until she joins him on stage in front of everyone. So we then get the montage of the world premiere of Romeo and Juliet, and it's a huge success. The crowd is wrapped in silent mourning at the end before erupting into a huge ovation. The royal official bursts in to arrest everyone for having a woman on stage, but Queen Elizabeth herself shows up. And I'm not sure if the implication is supposed to be that she had been watching the whole time or not. Either way, she plays coy and says, no, this is simply Thomas Kent giving us a remarkably female-like performance. Anyone could have been fooled. Wessex has shown up to track down his wife by this time and throws himself before the queen for a resolution to his dilemma. Basically, he has no control over his wife, who is in love with Will Shakespeare. The queen, again playing coy, puts her foot down and sends Master Kent inside to go say her goodbyes and send out Viola. Will and Viola say their tearful farewell and plot out the Shakespearean play Twelfth Night as a hypothetical parallel to their own situation. That play opens after a shipwreck and Viola and Wessex were about to sail to his tobacco plantation in Virginia. They imagine the ship will be destroyed and she'll be the sole survivor. And this is how the movie ends. Bittersweet in Will's imagination as he continues on writing, and we, the audience, know that he will go on to become the most famous writer in history. So again, this is a really, really good movie, and I went through that fast enough that even if you've never seen it, you'll still fully enjoy it. Just don't compare it to Saving Private Ryan. They're just two completely different kinds of movies. There are a couple more historical characters I didn't mention by name. The royal official who shuts them down for having a woman on stage, and... He's the same man who made the call earlier whether to open or close the theaters due to plague wreaking havoc on the city. This was Sir Edmund Tilney. His official title was Master of the Revels, basically a man in charge of royal festivities and the theater. And another one the film goes out of its way to highlight is the poor young boy who hangs around the theater. They're always getting his opinion on things, and he's the one who outs Viola as a woman. He gives his name as John Webster. This was a writer who overlapped with Shakespeare and who would have been about 13 in 1593. He was well regarded as a playwright, and this was just their way of sneaking him into the story. 
The fact that the boy is John Webster really adds nothing to the movie, but I guess it is fun if you knew of him beforehand. So we really don't know much at all about the private life of William Shakespeare. We just know that he wrote and acted in London at this time. The theater was just too lowly of a profession at the time for him to have been considered important. That's actually why women weren't allowed on stage. It was just considered too unseemly and probably wasn't necessarily illegal, more of an unwritten social rule. In 1593, the Globe Theater was opened, and that's the Shakespearean theater replicated today in London, where you can see his plays performed. Shakespeare was 52 years old when he died in 1616. He had four grandchildren, but none of them had children of their own, so no one today is believed to be descended from Shakespeare. While he was definitely well-regarded in his day, the legendary status he holds today is something that developed gradually, well after his death. In the 19th century in particular, critics and writers elevated him to the genius level. And of course, he can be a polarizing topic. Many feel he's just too inaccessible and the language too hard to decipher to get any real enjoyment from. And I get it. But I will say what I've noticed is that the more time you give him, the more you love him. So he's definitely an acquired taste. Not to completely lose you, but I do want to share one of my favorite Shakespearean soliloquies from Macbeth about the futility of human life. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty place from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow. A poor player who struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. I don't want to break it down and be all patronizing, but man, I tell you, the more you read or listen to that, I promise you'll recognize its power. Of course, the most significant historical figure in Shakespeare in Love is Queen Elizabeth I. She connects us back to last month's A Man for All Seasons, as Elizabeth was the daughter of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. We also mentioned her having correspondence with Ivan the Terrible. She and her sister Mary, who preceded her, were the first two queens in English history. In this film, she is played by Judy Dench, who won an Oscar for her performance. We get a powerful line from the queen when she confronts the cast of the play at the end of the film. She says, I know something of a woman in a man's profession. Yes, by God, I do know something about that. Queen Elizabeth would have been 59 at the time our film is set. She died 10 years later without an heir. The crown then fell to the Scottish king, James VI, who became James I of England. He was the great-great-grandson of Henry VII, a descendant of Henry VIII's sister Margaret. He was also a descendant of King Duncan, who Macbeth kills in the Shakespeare play. Elsewhere in the world around this time... Also in 1593, the Thirteen Years' War between the Habsburgs of Austria and the Ottoman Empire began. René Descartes, who said, I think, therefore I am, was born in 1596. And six years before Shakespeare's death, an eight-year-old Louis XIII ascended to the French throne. Next week, we'll travel to his court and meet a group of fun-loving swashbucklers with the 1973 version of Alexander Dumas' classic, The Three Musketeers. The Three Musketeers. 